Do you want to hear people talk about nationally irrelevant teams that mean a lot to you? Well, then this episode's the place. The Jazz just keep winning on, just keep on winning close games, and Larry Markkinen consistently adds to winning. Plus, the running Utes have now lost four straight. Is the season effectively over? And for our draft segment, in light of the Mandalorian coming out this Wednesday, we're going to be drafting our favorite characters from the Mandalorian. That's going to be good, and it's all coming up right now on the Thatcher Effect. Five, four. Three, two. You're listening to The Thatcher Effect with your hosts, Nate Thatcher and Richie Osler. Well, I didn't see that coming. All right, here are today's Thatcher Effect headlines. Richie, do us the honors. The Utah Jazz are currently 31 and 31. I feel like every time we talk about the Jazz, their record is right at 500. They'll go down, they'll go up. But for some reason, whenever we talk about them, they're right at 500. Um, they're currently sitting in eighth in the West, which I wasn't expecting after the trade deadline. And they had back to back wins against Oklahoma City and San Antonio. The Jazz are getting ready to play San Antonio again, and then they go on a six game road trip, followed by some tough games after that. So the final stretch is looking tough. But with 20 games left, there are many ways that the Jazz can maneuver in the standings. And Jazz fans will have a very close eye on this final stretch. Oh, for sure. Uh, the running Utes lost two big games against the L.A. schools without, again, two of their key starters, Gabe Madsen and Raleigh Wooster. But the Utes still managed to put up a fight in each of those games. They, like, they've shown a, a ton of grit these last two weeks. Uh, after the last week, the Utes dropped to sixth in the Pac-12. They won't finish anywhere lower than seventh, but that does mean this point moving forward, they'll miss out on the first round by of the Pac-12 tournament. Um, big sports news, though. The NBA, we just have to talk about the NBA in general, but we can talk about what happened on Sunday night. Dame dropped 71, uh, tied the all-time record for three-pointers made in a game with Clay Thompson. Uh, shout out to the Portland Trailblazers TV crew for leaving out Donovan Mitchell on the all-time scores in a game. I thought that was hilarious. But, Rich, what were your thoughts on Dame's game on Sunday but overall, just like the last week, we had some incredible matchups. What, what are your thoughts on the, the key matchups that had this, that happened this last week? Starting with Dame's game, I mean, that was incredible. It's against the Houston Rockets, so say what you will, but 71 is 71. It's incredibly hard to do. No, pl- There hasn't been somebody that's done it, two people that have done it in the same season since like back in Wilt's days, the 60s, so it really speaks to just how good Damian Lillard is as well as just how the game has evolved. Um, I don't think Damian Lillard gets enough credit for just the superstar that he's been last year was a down year, but then after the season, we find out that he has this ab um, injury and this core injury and that it was affecting his whole year, but he was still playing. He's just like, he's exactly what you want in a superstar this year. He's been on on an incredible run. And he's putting up really good scoring numbers. He's been one of the best offensive players in the NBA. I feel bad for him because the team around him just isn't good enough yet. And who knows if they will be before his prime is over. But honestly, just an unreal talent. I don't feel like Damian Lillard gets enough credit. Um, And tonight was just, man, or last night when he dropped 71 points. It's just like, it's one of those moments where you just kind of pause and you have to take it all in because you have to understand how many points that is and just the difficulty that he's doing it at 13, three pointers made too. heck of a game. Yeah. I, 
you look at the shot chart alone, and I think it doesn't really matter what the opponent that he was playing. Like the fact that he was just, he pulls up, like he always pulls up from deep at least once or twice a game. But the fact that you could just see the confidence in his eyes as he pulls up from the logo, like that was a game that was so fun to watch. And like you were saying, the fact that we had two players score 71 points this season and that now the record of most 40-point games in the NBA in a single season is going to get blown out of the water this season. Like we're seeing It's already some, been broken. Yeah, like it's already been broken. They're predicting that it's going to be like – what was the record before this year? It was only in – It was like, like the around 142. Yeah. And yeah, they got it a lot earlier this week. Yeah. So the fact that they're going to absolutely pass that without any hesitation – like we're seeing some elite level scoring and and you can make a case that maybe it's like the older generation will say that it's not the the defensive type of game they used to play, but it's like no one's ever seen this level of shooting before. And I think that's why the NBA is still so fun to watch is because we're seeing guys like Dame and, and Donovan shooting in a way that literally like no one has ever done. The greats that literally all came before them were not able to do that. And the fact that we're able to witness it live was incredible. It was so cool. Um, but last week we also had um, that Kings Clippers game. Richie, you have to explain it because unfortunately I did not watch it because I was asleep <laughs> and I wake up and I see my entire Twitter feed is just flooded with, this is the greatest game of the season. This is like, this is like the change of the Kings season. Richie, what were your thoughts on the epic double overtime game against the Kings and the Clippers last week? Well, it was, it was an awesome game. Lots of storylines going on. First of all, it was Russell Westbrook's first game playing for the Clippers. So a lot of people already had their eyes on it. They wanted to see what Westbrook would look like, and they wanted to see how he would look in a starting role. Um, and I thought he played all right. I, I watched most of the game um, pretty much to the third quarter to the end of second overtime, and I thought he looked all right. He does Russell Westbrook things. like He's not necessarily washed, but he's not the player that he once was. Um, some other storylines in the game. I mean, you had the two Kentucky guys that played together, De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk, both dropped 40. That was awesome. Um, just throughout the game though, it was so close. The scoring was equal for all four of the first quarters. Like if you look at their quarter by quarter scoring, it's equal. They're tied at the end of every quarter. Um, and then they go into overtime and double overtime and overtime obviously ends scoring same. And then double double overtime, the Kings pull uh, pull away a little bit, but it was also a really good reminder of Kawhi Leonard and the type of player that he can be. That was my big takeaway watching that. I think the Kings are good. I think they're a really good story. They are well on their way to being the three seed. They have ten more wins than they do losses right now, which is really impressive. If you would have told me that the Kings were going to be in this position last year, I would have absolutely doubted you i don't care that they had darren fox and demontis sabonis who i both think are good players i just would not have believed it and so credit to them credit to mike brown and that mike brown and that coaching staff it's been an incredible season for them but Kawhi leonard we have slowly seen his reemergence into what we know can be that terminator-esque player that can shut down teams in the playoff on both ends and we saw it a little bit against the kings granted that was one of the highest scoring games ever in NBA history. The second highest scoring game. Um, you're still able to see how Kawhi is just so good on both ends of the floor. He made some really shots for the Clippers down the line. Um, I mean, there was just so much that went on in that game. I like don't even know where to start or to finish. 
because it was just an incredible game. You had the most points scored off the bench by Malik Monk, like a 40 ball off the bench, just insane. Um, but yeah, really, really good game. And my my initial thought after it was, what's this going to do for Clippers load management? Because they load managed unlike other any other team and Kawhi played 46 minutes that night. But it doesn't seem to have, have, have affected them too much because he played against Denver the other night. But yeah, that was one of the best... One of the best season, one of the best games in the regular season I've watched with my eyes, as well as just one of the best games in NBA history. Double overtime, almost breaks the record for points scored in a game. Just incredible. Yeah, and the fact that all those guys are playing at such an elite level. And as you're saying, that's what I was going to mention. Because Kawhi has been coming back from that injury and just nothing, it, it seems like we haven't seen much of him since um, when the Jazz competed with them two years ago in the playoffs. He is such a clutch player, in my opinion, especially in the offensive side of the glass. Um, watching the game on Sunday against the Nuggets, once again, when it's getting down to closing time, you always find the ball in Kawhi's hands. And I know a lot of people, and us Jazz fans know this, they like to think that Paul George was, you know, playoff P. He's, you know, he's got the he's got the clutch gene. Like, no, like, the ball is going into Kawhi's hands because he just has this, ability to make and create shots in the clutch and it happens on a consistent basis when he's fully healthy and fully in the game watching the game against uh the highlights against the kings and also against denver you can literally have your hand on the ball guarding Kawhi, and that dude just finds a way to get it done you can attribute that to the massive hands that dude has but i just think watching those games he is one of the kings of the mid-range, he takes smart shots, which I feel like is, once again, in today's league where shooting has become more prominent, he's one of the guys which will be smart about his decision-making, especially when he's going to shoot the ball. Because when you think of like elite shooters in the game, you're obviously not going to think of Kawhi Leonard off the bat. But what, what sets him apart, in my opinion, is his high IQ on the offensive side of the ball. We know him very well on the defensive end. He's a hustler. He gets steals. Heck, that's why they call him the claw. But... I loved watching him in the clutch. I think he's one of the best players, funnest players to watch when games are close at the end. And I think that Kings Clippers game proved exactly that at the same time, what you're speaking to about the Kings, honestly, I'm happy for those guys. The fact that this has been 17 years since those guys have been 10 games over 500, like that's so that's, it's like sad for a franchise. And as much as as jazz fans like to complain that we've never really been far that many times in the playoffs, like, we, at least we've actually like been to the playoffs and I think that's fun to watch. And the fact that the Kings are, haven't been in this position in almost two decades, like good for them. Light the beam. Let's go. Um, I know a lot of, a ton of people are hopping onto the Kings bandwagon. I'm like, you know what? Give them some more fans. Cause I think Sacramento in the playoffs will be a fun environment to, to watch and be a part of. I think it's a fun team. I think De'Aaron Fox is finally living up to who I think a lot of people were predicting he would be when he was drafted. I mean, lottery pick, um, watching him play in college was fantastic. Same with Malik Monk. And so the fact that those guys were able to show off their talents on such a big stage was awesome. Um, but then we had the game against uh, Celtics and Sixers. And then you had, like we were mentioning, like Nuggets and Clippers again. Like, just great games overall. And what we were attributing to um, these close games last week was the fact that players are sort of view the All-Star Weekend as a vacation. So coming back, they have a different mindset and saying, okay, we need to you know, close all these these last 25 games out. We need to get a good seed in the playoffs. And 
I think you're seeing it in the first week. You're seeing the type of effort that all these players are putting out on the floor. And it's creating such a fun environment for NBA fans to watch. Like, again, if you're only watching jazz games, you're missing out because I just think there's so much fun basketball to be had. I think the league is in such a good place. So you have to, you have to stay tuned, watch the primetime games, watch everything because I was so impressed by what we saw last week in the NBA. Um, before we move on to specifically about the Utah jazz, dude, how about a shout out to Utah women's basketball? Um, you and I talked over the weekend as much as Utah men's basketball has been lacking because of injuries and stuff and not as fun to watch. Dude, the Utah women's basketball team is ranked third in the country. It's the highest ranking ever. They're most likely, um, they're going to be a one seed in the tourney, which I would have never predicted as well. I think that's kind of like a King's prediction. Like you were saying, like if someone came up to me and told me that that would happen, I would have never thought that, but what a turnaround for the program. Like they were one of the worst women's college basketball teams there for a hot sec. And that was really cool to see like the Huntsman more packed for a women's game. Maybe I shouldn't say it's cool, but I'm, I'm just saying like, it's good that so many people came to show them support because like they need that. Like they deserve that. I think they're so fun to watch. And the Pac-12 tournaments this weekend. Good luck to them. I hope they put on a show. Do but Alyssa Peely, I think she's one of the most fun basketball players to watch. And I'm excited to see what they do in the tournament because I think obviously if you're ranked third, like I think these women can go far. I, it's always been Stanford, South Carolina, um, UConn that I've always like dominated women's college basketball. And I feel like this is a year where maybe someone else can kind of get into that realm. And Utah's pushing for it. I think they can do it. So, Richie, what are your what are your thoughts on Utah women's basketball at this point right now? Yeah, I think the point you made about the attendance is really awesome because um, the number I saw was around like nine thousand five hundred, which is awesome. I think that's I'm pretty sure that's more than any men's game this year, and they absolutely deserve all that support. They have put together an incredible season. Shout out to Lynn Roberts; she is going to win Pac-12 Coach of the Year. Um, Alyssa Pilly is a really good case for player of the year in the Pac-12 and it's awesome yeah I mean this isn't something that most people saw coming but just consistently they've risen up the standings they beat the teams that they have to win they put together a really good tournament resume and they're going to take that into the Pac-12 tournament and then the NCAA tournament and if I'm not mistaken they will host a game in the NCAA tournament right yeah, so the one seeds, I believe, host the opening two rounds. So I think oh, wow. the first two games will be at the Huntsman Center. And I think, I can't remember how many teams they host. Um, maybe it's, I mean, it's it's a pretty decent amount. But yeah, so they, I mean, most likely they'll get to play two games at the Huntsman Center, which is huge because like you don't get that in men's college basketball. Like it's obviously neutral, like neutral court. So hopefully fans show out because I think, again, like that's such a fun team to watch. Yeah, I'm. I mean, that would be a really good way to start the tournament and start a in a successful run. Um, but yeah, we'll be cheering for them the rest of the way down. Honestly, incredible story. Good for them. Good for the woman on the hill. Yeah, it's great for the woman on the hill. The attendance number. It's it's bad for the men because I just think like and, and again, it's not like it's not a bash against them because again, like the women absolutely deserve this. It should be like this all the time. It's just the fact that. The men's program was the one that used to be, I, I feel like we need to go to a place where both of them are competing at high levels, which I think Craig Smith hopefully can do that soon, but that'd be awesome to see the Huntsman rocking every single game for both men and women. But everyone here is is here to listen to Richie talk about some Utah jazz, and that's exactly what we're going to do next. It's the Utah jazz segment brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. 
Jazz fans, it's time to bring the hoops action to the palm of your hand with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet $5 and win $200 in bonus bets instantly. Plus, for a limited time, all new and existing customers can get a no-sweat same-game parlay every day. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app today, opt in, and place the same-game parlay on any NBA game, and if it doesn't hit, you'll get a bonus bet back. Download the app now and sign up with code TBPN. New customers can bet $5 on the NBA and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, with code TBPN. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Richie, like you've been saying, every time we're talking, the Jazz are sitting at 500, but there's always a new conversation to be had. We had some 10-day contracts, some guys come in, maybe change the storyline a little bit, but the Jazz are sitting at 31 and 31. And like you said earlier, this isn't a place where we thought the Jazz would be at this point of the season, especially after the moves they made in the trade deadline. So... Richie, what are your thoughts right now on the current state of the Jazz and where you think they'll be going with the current roster that they have right now? Well, the Jazz just keep on winning games, and I think there's one reason why, but I'm going to kind of get to that a little bit later. Um, so since the trade deadline, the Jazz are 4-2, and two, and every single game has been close except for the game that they beat, um, the game against the Spurs on Saturday, which they won by seven, 17. Um but they won by six on the over the Raptors on the road, lost by six to the Knicks on the road, won by six to the Pacers on the road, lost by six to the Grizzlies on the road. And they came home, beat the Thunder by one in overtime, which that game was awesome. I, that, that was one of the games in the weekend slate that was also a hit. Um, I mean, two playing teams going at it. You who, who would think that it would be such entertaining basketball? But that was a great game. Um, the underlying factor in all these games. And I think the thing that has kept the jazz competitive is pretty simple. I think it's Laurie Markkinen over this six game stretch. He's averaged 30.2 points per game, 7.8 rebounds and 2.8 assists. And the splits aren't that great. His shooting splits. He's not shooting good from the three at all. He's shooting 29% in those games, 95% from the free throw line. Great. 48% from um, just the field in general. He is plus 37 in those games, so plus 7.4 on average. And he's averaging 12.6 points in the fourth quarter every single game. That's the thing that jumps out to me the most is his fourth quarter scoring. We've seen it game after game where he's kind of having a hard time settling into his groove. The shot has not been falling. And when you're a shooter and the shot isn't falling, that's hard. That's going to mess with your mental um, capabilities and just like your confidence in general. But Laurie Markkinen has been pushing through that. He's been figuring out other ways to contribute to the game. Like I said, the two assists, 2.4 assists or whatever he's averaging, I think that's big. His ability to be a playmaker when he has so much scoring gravity will re be really big for his trajectory as a player. Um, but most of all, I mean, his scoring has just been incredible. He's doing it in all kinds of ways. He's starting to incorporate different kinds of shots into his game he's done this little hook shot a couple times recently he's done some fadeaways he's just scoring in all different types of way he has a signature poster dunk at least once a game and it's awesome watching Laurie Markin in every night in my opinion is must watch basketball because he has become such an exciting player and it's the same thing with the Kings with Utah Wounds basketball I would have never predicted Laurie Markkinen to be this effective of a player, let alone 
have a serious case for most improved player and a legitimate case for an all NBA team. And that's what I want to get at with this point is his legit case for all NBA. Thatcher, what do you think about Larry Markkinen as an all NBA player? I think he has a case. Um, obviously, I, I'm not leaning on the side that he'll actually get it. But as you were saying, like the stats and watching his game alone, he definitely has a case. Um, what, what, what were your thoughts and what have you seen from predictions about players that are predicted to make that All-NBA team? Is he like predicted to be a, a first guy, second guy, third guy? What are the, what are the people saying? Well, I got to give credit to Andy Bailey, Andy Bailey, who's on Twitter, big Bleacher Report writer, covers the Nuggets a lot. Um, he does these rankings of all the catch-all sp- uh, statistics. So it's like the Raptor, the BPM, EPM, LeBron, all your top statistics, you know. And so he went through those statistics and ranked the top 15 players. And according to those rankings, Laurie Markkinen would secure him spot as the very last forward, the 15th player to make an all NBA team. Um, His season has been that good. And I don't think that conversation is necessarily going to be had as much as we would like it to be had because there have been some other really good forwards but also, I don't think it's impossible. He's played enough games. He'll keep playing games. He's helping the Jazz win. And if he keeps helping the Jazz win, if the Jazz keep hovering around a play-in spot, if they don't drop to like 11th but stay in like 8th or 9th, then you're going to have to have that conversation seriously. Um, what the Jazz are doing right now is kind of insane because they started the season. Everybody thought this team is going to be really bad. And they started the season off hot and played pretty averagely throughout the rest, stayed around 500. um, And they've continued to do that throughout this next stretch where they traded three core guys, three guys that are playing good basketball on other teams right now. And they're still winning games. It's just like the underlying factor is Larry Markkinen and the player that he is and has developed into. And I think you have to have a serious conversation about him being on an all NBA team. That has to 100% be a conversation. And like I said, it's sad that I'm leaning towards feeling like people aren't going to be talking about him as a potential candidate, but it's like, I understand that there were injuries in the all-star game, but that's an all-star starter. And looking at how this jazz team was perceived before the season. And now looking at the roster that they have now, you have to realize how much marketing has not only carried this team on his back, but how he's allowed, like you said, his other teammates to um, succeed especially after the trade deadline when you lose a key player like Mike Conley and, again, a key part of your offense like Malik Beasley. And Jared, we've seen Jared Vanderbilt already put up some amazing games for the Lakers. I think that Laurie Markkinen is 100% the most improved player in the NBA. I think if anyone wins it, I'm going to react exactly like how I did when Donovan didn't win Rookie of the Year because, it to me, it just feels so obvious. And I don't know how... Um, that voting will end up. But in my opinion, as I feel like most other people can agree, like Laurie Markin has to be the most improved player in the NBA. Um, as you were mentioning before, he's a guy that I don't think anyone would have predicted would have evolved his game in such a way like he has this year. I really thought before he came onto this team, he was really one-dimensional. Um, a lengthy guy who can shoot the ball. That was about it. And what you mentioned before is his shots 
especially during this really good stretch um, that the Jazz have had recently past this trade deadline where they've been able to compete in games, you've seen that his shot hasn't really been the same as it was the beginning of the season where he's, you know, really shooting really lights out from, from deep. But now he's able to drive into the paint. And you were talking about, I mean, he's creating posters every night. It's amazing to watch. But he just knows how to create shots now down low. And I think that's such that's such an important part of his game. Like he literally has everything now. Like if his shot is there, I mean, now he's a threat from every part of the court, which is exactly what you want in a type of guy on a championship type of team. Now, I think having an all NBA guy on your team is great. Like we've been mentioning time and time again, I don't think he's he needs to be the number one option on a championship team. But if you can have an all NBA guy as your second or third option, like this is beautiful. Like I think this is setting up the Jazz for success for future roster moves to make a good change to set someone up with Markinen because I think this year has not only been a learning year for a lot of guys on the Jazz. Um, we've seen a lot of their game evolve. Uh, we've talked about a fourth Colin Sexton learning from Mike Conley. I think his game has for sure evolved because he learned from, you know, one of the best veteran point guards in the league today. But Markinen has just been able to take his game to the next level. And like you said, it's must-watch basketball. It's so fun to watch. And although the Jazz are sitting at a 500 record, which, again, is average, like most of the games they've competed in. And again, there's only been a few blowouts. One of them was on the night of the trade or the night before the trade deadline where the big Jazz trade happened right before the game. Obviously, that's going to affect the Jazz in some way, and it did. But besides that, like the Jazz have been competitive and they've been fun to watch. And if anything, like you have to watch Lori Markkinen because the dude's just putting on a show. Um, but recently there's been some other guys that have been stepping up lately, specifically Chris Dunn, who's on a 10-day contract. Um, I thought those uh, signings were very interesting when we first saw them, um, Also, mainly because we also saw Frank Jackson come in, a, a local favorite. He's, he was putting up great numbers in the G League. Richie, what were your thoughts of those 10-day signees when they came in? And what are your thoughts on Chris Dunn right now and how he's playing? Yeah, well, I think they were very timely signings. Um, you had to use those roster spots when you waived Westbrook, when you waived Balmaro. You had to open up roster spots. So great timing for the Jazz. Um, also, Colin Sexton went down. And Colin Sexton's supposed to be out all of this week and maybe even a little bit longer. And so just having some guard depth, which we already lacked before signing these guys, is really big. Um, I want to talk about Chris Dunn because he put together two really good games against OKC and against San Antonio. The game against San Antonio was probably the better of the two games, but he played solid in both. So in this two-game stretch, he's averaging 13 points, four and a half assists, four rebounds, playing 20 minutes per game, um, shooting 52% from the field and 28% from three. So Chris Dunn's big knock is that he's not a good three-point shooter, and it's looking to be about the same. He shot about 40% in the G League, and it hasn't totally translated, but maybe that's just something that changes as he gets more reps, as he plays a little bit more. Um, what really stands out to me is his intensity and his defense. Guard defense is, in my opinion, really fun to watch. I love that guards are so fast that they can get into lots of different spaces. There was one play against San Antonio that stuck out to me where um, it might have been against OKC. I can't remember. But they passed the ball into the post. He was on the other side of his man. Um, who was trying to post him up and he went around and stole the ball and then takes it off in, tra in a transition. He forced a couple other steals. He's 
played really good in the passing lanes, pickpocketing guys. He's had three steals in these two games and a block. And I just love the chaos that that kind of defense creates because this Jazz team is, they're not the best team in transition, but they're pretty dang good in transition, especially having Jordan Clarkson as a shooter, run into the corner, having Larry Markin and being able to dunk. Kessler's really good in the open floor. Just having somebody to be able to create that kind of chaos and get out in transition is really valuable for this Jazz team. Um, also, just his general intensity has been incredible. Like I said, he is playing at a really high level defensively. And like I said, he's forcing his um, opponents to make errors. And I think that's just so crucial, especially when the Jazz are just desperately lacking guard depth. I'm excited for, to keep watching him. Um, it's possible that these two games might be a little fluky, that he kind of regresses back to the player he, who he was. Granted, he's never been like a bad NBA player, but he's always just kind of been borderline, and some of the skills he has don't necessarily translate to the NBA game um, compared to some of the weaknesses that he has because he has these glaring weaknesses with his shooting that makes him easy to stop. But... Um, I think he's definitely worth keeping an eye on these next couple games. He has history with Laurie Markinen, so I'm curious to see how they keep playing together. Um, and as for Frank Jackson, I'm excited to see if he gets any run. Jordan Clarkson will be out for tomorrow's game, so it's possible we see some Frank Jackson run, um, considering that we are going against the San Antonio Spurs, who are on a 15-game losing streak. Props to them. They are out-taking the world. Um, but yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on with those two guys who will probably get some run tomorrow. There's no better time to really showcase your talents than going up against the leader in the Wembenyama sweepstakes and then the Thunder. And I am really interested in seeing that two-game stretch in Oklahoma City. Um, they're playing on a Friday and a Sunday. Um, and I think that would just be so fun to watch those guys kind of step up and see if they can secure a roster spot because – as you said, it could be fluky, but I really like the hustle that I saw from Chris Dunn. Overall, I think no matter who seems to come into the Utah Jazz franchise, it just seems like, especially this year, it's just a it's a gritty bunch of guys. Uh, I feel like they're always, like you said, they're putting up close games against every opponent. Now, that's not saying that they're playing a great game every game because again, there's really good opponents and there's really bad opponents, but they're always competing and they're and they're putting up a ton of energy, a ton of confidence, and it's really fun to watch as a fan. We didn't even talk about Walker Kessler had an amazing game against Oklahoma City. Um, I think that, again, was another game where we saw a rising star potential where we could see this guy can potentially be an all-NBA type of guy, a defensive player of the year. He has already learned so many things on the defensive side of the ball that I thought were so fun to watch. Um, I, I think the play you obviously have to look at is the – the block at the end of regulation to send it into overtime. I don't think people can understand how hard it is for a defender to be behind uh, your opponent and then to go in stride and block his shot off the, like that was incredible. And we've seen Rudy do it a few times, but the fact that this is a rookie doing this is incredible. And I think again, just like Laurie Markin and I think Walker Kessers is a guy like he's getting to the point where you want to watch him because he's starting to do things as a rookie that I think just like, again, not a lot of rookies are doing. And he's proving that by being a leader in the rookie of the year contest. Obviously he's not going to win. And I don't think he's going to win, but the fact that he's in the top five 
did not think that at all at the beginning of the season. Um, I thought he was just a leftover piece in a trade. And I didn't think he was going to be, a, a again, like a key piece in the league. But we're seeing it time and time again, like Markin, that like he's putting up good numbers. Yeah, I think Kessler has a really good case for Rookie of the Month, which we'll find out in the next couple of days. Um, I'm Some of the other rookies haven't been as efficient. Like Paulo, has, his shooting percentages have dropped significantly. I don't think that's very um, problematic for his long-term trajectory, but he's kind of had a rough month. And Kessler just, he keeps getting better and better. Also, I don't think we talked about the three-point shot. First play of the game, first play after the All-Star break, Will Hardy apparently drew it up because Kessler was bothering him all all-star break about it. Drew it up first play. Kessler nails it. That's I love the confidence that that exudes. Like, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Thatcher? Well, Walker Kessler right now has the highest three-point percentage in NBA history. So he's he's the best there ever was. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything different. But I actually saw him, I was able to see him warm up before the skills challenge. And he was actually putting up like good warm up shots. And I was like, geez, why are we, why haven't we had this guy shoot before? I think I can remember, I, I don't remember who it was against, but there was a possession early in the season where the Jazz had, you know, one second baseline inbound. They just threw it to Walker and he had like a deep two jumper and just absolutely drained it. And I was like, oh, okay. Like we never, we saw Rudy attempt to do it at least, I don't know, maybe like 10 times a season. Rudy would try and put a jumper in. Obviously, never really hit. But Again, I feel like as we've seen Markinen evolve his game this season, I don't think it'll happen. Obviously, everything will happen in Walker's rookie season. But I can definitely see him not only continue to evolve his defensive side of the ball, but like his offensive side. Because imagine, now you have a Rudy Gobert-esque defensive player, a man who can change the game in the paint. And I, again, I saw that against OKC where I was like, this is like deja vu, where you have guards driving into the paint and they're not comfortable going in there with their shot because of Walker Kessler and they're having to pick it back out, start over again. And I was like, dude, I'd, I I miss that. Like, that's so awesome that he's having that effect now in the paint as a rookie. But now on the offensive side of the ball, to be able to have an outside shot, like that changes the game. And once again, like that was a weakness that I feel that Rudy Gobert seemed to have had where he wasn't able to exactly... Um, really guard on the perimeter the entire game. Obviously, in clutch moments, I think Rudy Gobert was was fine for the most part, uh, despite what maybe Bam Adebayo might say. But I think Walker Kessler being able to evolve his shot on the outside is exactly what the Jazz will need down the stretch to become a championship team. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I also love that you threw in that Bam Adebayo comment because I've had this raging anger boiling up in me about his comments today just about like Rudy Gobert not being a good playoff defender like Rudy Gobert was fine in the playoffs he was never the problem and we don't have to get too much into this but I just I want somebody to like me the way Bam likes to talk about Rudy Gobert and the defensive player of the year trophy I just he he talks about it like nobody else I feel like Jazz fans already know that the problem wasn't Rudy and we've probably talked about it in past episodes. Like we know it wasn't Rudy, but the league doesn't see it as that. Like they see, they don't see Quinn Snyder failing to make adjustments. They don't see any of the other players that were failing on the defensive side of the ball. They just see, Oh, well people go small ball. You can beat Rudy. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, pretty, pretty unintelligent analysis in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a lame argument. Yeah. Very lame. 
Uh, back to Walker Kessler. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the guys that's been kind of jumping into my head when thinking about Kessler lately has been Brooke Lopez. Brooke Lopez started in the NBA, really good offensive center, did not have a three-point shot whatsoever. And if you watch Brooke Lopez now, he's one of the best shooting big men in the game. And he brings it every game. He He's like the exact type of guy you want Kessler to turn into because realistically, Kessler's probably... If you're winning a championship, Kessler is not going to be your second or third best player. He's probably going to have to be fourth or fifth. But some of the things he does, he's already elite at. And if he continues on that trajectory, as well as adding other things to his game, I think you have a really core piece to contend for a championship. And he makes the window just a little bit bigger because of his age, because of um, his health. And I don't know. I, I'm really high on Kessler. I I would love to see him sort of develop that three-point shot into the future. Yeah, I think he can be a potential all-time great for the Utah Jazz if he does stick around. And he seems like the type of type of personality, the type of superstar, where I feel like he's not going to be searching for any type of big market like we usually see in today's league. And I think that's such a valuable piece to have as a franchise. I'm very jealous of Denver because I think Jokic is one of those guys where, again, he can be a three-time MVP, can three-peat as the MVP of the league, and you can bet your bottom dollar that guy would rather be on his farm in Serbia than playing in the NBA. Like, you don't have that that often. It's the same thing with Dame. Like, they're bringing it up constantly, the conversation of Dame wanting to go to, needs to go to another franchise, needs to get a ring. But the fact that he just is so focused on winning it for Portland, it's admirable, and it's, it's what you want on a superstar. The fact that they can they mean so much more than just being a star for the franchise. Like you see the impact that these players have on small markets, like as a city and us as jazz fans, we know what that means, right? We saw that with Donovan and Rudy, like it meant more because they're really just like the stars of your state, like the stars of, of your city. And so it means a lot more than just being a, a player for a local franchise. So I, I think Walker has the type of personality and same with marketing. Like I think they're the type of players that are, are satisfied with where they're at. And they, I think they fall in love with the places that they play in. I think we saw that with marketing when he found out he was great, getting traded to Utah. Like I think he's, he's grown connections with the places that he's played. And I think now obviously understanding that he's going to be a key piece for the jazz. I feel like he's going to want to stick around. I might sound like a broken record. I said that about Donovan, said that about Gordon Hayward. Look where that turned out. Um, but I feel like maybe this time it, it can be different. And who knows? Maybe we'll have a different conversation in five years. But they just don't seem like the type of stars that would have that type of mentality like, hey, I need a bigger market. I need to go to a coastal franchise. And like you said, because Walker's so young, I think it opens up the window for the Jazz to make their next championship run You know, within the next decade and a half, you know? So we'll see what happens with the Jazz. But I think, like you said, it's fun basketball. There's so many fun games down the stretch. Think about it. The Jazz haven't even played the Celtics yet. Um, I They might get whooped. But I just think it's going to be so fun to see um, all the different teams that the Jazz are going to be playing. Uh, again, this, this next week is not that exciting. But at the same time, it is. We're playing the Thunder two times. Um, and then after that, you're going to Dallas. I just think there's so many opportunities to watch these guys ball out. Cause again, we don't know with how close the West is like if they're even going to make the playoffs. I mean, you lose two games, you're out of the play in you win two games. You could be up into the, you know, five seed. I just think you have to take these guys for all they're worth. Um, watch them as you can, when you can. And I, I just think going into next season, there's going to be a lot of hype about this jazz team where they can end up with the roster moves with 
the potential trades that they could make should be exciting. Uh, maybe not as exciting, but we're still going to talk about it. Running Utes men's basketball. Uh, they dropped two games to USC and UCLA. I thought Thursday's game against the Bruins was so fun to watch. Uh, maybe not at first. In the first half, it was kind of not that great. Second half, really fun basketball. And I think we were proven wrong a little bit, maybe proven right um, with the play of Mike Saunders. But Richie, what are your thoughts on how the Utes performed against UCLA on Thursday and on Sunday and maybe how Mike Saunders comes into the equation now that we have some injuries on the roster? Yeah, first of all, I got to apologize for my horrific take last week. I said Mike Saunders wasn't going to touch the floor the rest of the season. Dude's played 40 minutes in the last two games or 20 minutes each in the last two games. So thanks for proving me wrong, Craig Smith. I appreciate that. Um, I want to look back at those UCLA and USC games because although they were losses, I thought there was a lot to like, especially the UCLA game. Um, UCLA is a final four team They're and they're, they have that potential. They have everything you want in a team. They've got potential NBA guys in the future in Amari Bailey and other guys. Um, Jaime Hawkins is probably going to be an NBA guy. And then they have, kind of like the exact players you need in college basketball, Jalen Clark, Tiger Campbell. They're just such a complete team. Number four in the nation, and they look like a juggernaut. Um, the first half was pretty rough, like you said. Uh, UCLA scored 43 points. Utah scored 31. Carlson and Marco Anthony both had a really rough half, and that kind of just made everything poor. Um, second half was a lot better. Utah outscored UCLA in the second half, 40 to 35. Utah at one point got the that got the game within two points, and the momentum was tangible. I was watching it um, later, not the night of, and I was like, man, you could feel it in the Huntsman Center. You could feel that the guys were playing really good basketball, that the crowd was behind them. It was one of the biggest crowds of the season, and that just goes such a long way for the Utes and for the game. Um, they got they got really, really close and unfortunately weren't able to capitalize. Mike Saunders was the big story of that UCLA game. He played really good. Right when he went in, you could just kind of feel like UCLA's defense had to adjust a little bit. All of a sudden, you have this guy that's able to kind of break down a defense in the way that I've been talking about all season. A guy that's able to get into the paint, get able to get a shot over somebody that's bigger than him. Um, able to make the defense collapse, which I don't think we've seen too much of throughout this season and it creates this whole new element guys are getting open shots um i noticed that carlson and anthony kind of started playing a bit better once saunders got in saunders himself played a really good game um he had 25 points against ucla which was a career high he was doing it all i think his floater is really nice i'm 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 a sucker for the floater i love watching players with floaters like cj mccollum is one of my favorite players to watch because that floater is so elite Mike Saunders was doing that against UCLA, and I think his ability to break down the paint in that way as an undersized guard is very valuable. Um, and yeah, overall, I mean, that game, it was a really fun game. Unfortunately, UCLA has Jaime Hawkes, and Jaime Hawkes did Jaime Hawkes things. He scored probably like 10 straight points. Um, Utah just could not stop him down the end, and that's ultimately what won UCLA the game. I, that's that's kind of where you believe that they could win the tournament is because they're going to get into situations like they did against Utah and they're going to go against teams that are probably worse than them on paper, but for whatever reason might be hot, might have a guy that wasn't on the scouting report get hot 
and it'll be a close game. But if you got a guy like Jaime Hawkins or Tiger Campbell, you could win any game. So I'm really high on UCLA as a team. I'm cheering for them in the tournament when that all starts. But for now, we're we're still enemies. Um, Thatcher, what were your thoughts on the UCLA game, just as well as Mike Saunders in general? To your point about UCLA, I think that's what sets championship teams apart is that you can go to, I feel like any one of their starters and he can close a game for you. And Hawk has proved that in the fact that Utah pushed so hard in the second half. They cut a 16-point deficit into, like you said, a two-point deficit. And like you said, the momentum was against UCLA. I felt like Utah was playing great defense. And they still were when Hawk has went on that scoring, that little scoring run. I mean, he was putting up shots, heavily contested shots, but he just had he just had something going and the shot was going in. And so I think that's what sets, especially college basketball teams apart. Um, like we were talking about before in the NBA, the shooting is elite. I think in college, it's such a different game and having viable and, you know, hot shooters in the game is game changer. And that's what sets you apart. And I think UCLA has that across the board. They've got athletic guys. They've got guys that can shoot from deep and they have guys with high IQ. And so, like you said, I think they're going to go deep in the tourney. I'm excited to see them and talk about them once we actually get into March Madness. Speaking about the Utes, like you said, we were we weren't hot about Mike Saunders last week. At the beginning of the season, I felt like when we were low on Raleigh Wooster at the very beginning, and we thought Mike Saunders should be getting more minutes, we were mentioning the attributes that you just kind of talked about. Being able to break down the defense, I thought a, a big talent that he has is uh, being able to be a difference maker in transition, especially in the offensive end. You see the speed that he has in the open space. He's able to change the game, and we saw that very late in the game. He missed the layup, but I mean, he was able to, he, he would have been able to cut the lead down to one or tie the game. And I just think having a guy like that is, is so needed. What sets Utah back. And I, I've said this multiple times, Mike Saunders is a decent shooter, but I just think overall the huge shooting is, is below average right now, especially with Madsen out. And again, I think that's, what's going to make you lose games is because I feel like when they're in, when they're in like a, a bad stretch, they take really bad shots. And usually it's like Stefanovic or some other guys, they're milking the clock. And I just feel like the decision-making wasn't good, especially in the first half um, and against USC. In the USC game, Mike Saunders, again, he did good things on offense, but his defense, I think, is what has been keeping him off the floor. And Craig Smith mentioned before that week that, listen, Mike hasn't been doing things in practice, things that we know can make an impact in the game. And I think he was mentioning the defensive side of the ball. Um, in the UCLA game, I thought there were basic pick and rolls that should be easy to defend. And I feel like Saunders was getting lost quite frequently. And that's a problem, obviously with a team like UCLA, where they can go deep in the tourney and the same thing with USC, USC is sad that they're the third best team in the PAC 12. Cause I don't think they're that great. I think they're a bubble team, obviously with a wit that win against Utah, I think they've probably moved themselves into beyond the first four or the last four in. They have shooters, though, that went on can, once again, create a difference. Uh, Drew Peterson has obviously been a guy that they can look to. Um, Boogie Ellis has proven to be clutch, especially in big-time games. And so I feel like that's what the Utes are really missing is the fact that both of those squads have multiple guys you can go to in the clutch, where I feel like every game, especially against big-time opponents, Utah only has one type of guy that's really going off. And so it limits your ability to pass the rock and have multiple guys be a threat in clutch minutes. 
It's different in the NBA because I feel like even though you know it's coming, they're just still so good that they can get it done. As we were mentioning with Kawhi Leonard, I know the ball's going to him, but I also know that he's going to get a good shot and he's going to get a good look and he's going to sink it. In college basketball, I feel like it's different. And that's what's going to set Utah apart down the stretch. You need to have multiple guys that can shoot the ball and that can do it in clutch minutes. Um, it was awesome to honor the seniors uh, that were at the beginning of Craig Smith's era against USC, uh, Jackson Brenchley, uh, Boston Holt, Brandon Carlson, Marco Anthony. Really sad to see Marco end his eligibility in college. I think he was, uh, Craig Smith mentioned he was a little bit banged up, but he's been such a good defender. He's been good in the mid-range. Speaking about Brenchley and Holt, I don't know what they'll do with Boston. He's shown some flashes of being maybe a good bench unit type of player. I think Brenchley may understand that he may want to give his spot up, and I think Craig wants to add more talent and more depth to his team. I think that's also another thing that Utah's lacking. So I'm interested to see how those senior spots change, especially after this season. But shout out to those guys, I think, especially in this rough of a transition from what we were, what we started with in the Craig Smith era to where they've gone. Again, I think it's a success. Um, I think it's a, I think it's been a successful year, no matter if, you know, they end up losing five straight in the regular season. The fact that they're most likely going to go to an NIT tournament, like that's what Utah needed. That was the next step that they needed to get to. Now, I think as we've been mentioning time and time again, I'm so excited for the off season to see how Utah recruits. And I think depending on how they recruit now going into games against UCLA and USC next year, the final year where we get these two really good basketball programs, I want to see the best of the best that Utah has to offer against these guys. And the fact that these last two years, like especially last year's Utah team, they were leading UCLA for most of the game at home at the Huntsman Center. This year, they gave this UCLA team a run for their money. Like Craig Smith's guys are putting an effort against the top tier opponents. I just think now it's a matter of elevating the roster so that now you can close in clutch minutes. Um, I think that's been the difference for Craig these last few years. He just has, he doesn't have a deep enough bench rotation to be able to win in the clutch. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that's one of the things that made USC stand apart when I was watching them is they had four guys on the floor at all times that could create their own shot. And I feel like that's just what Utah's lacking. You don't necessarily need four guys like USC has, but you need a couple guys. And it's interesting to look at this last year's recruiting class. You had Keba Keda, Will Exact, both two decent long-term prospects. Um, I mean, they both had kind of up and down years as you would expect from freshmen playing limited minutes this year. Um, then you had Luca Tarlach who didn't play too much. You had Ben Carlson who started every game. And I thought Ben Carlson played overall pretty well with it. He played in his role. Defense is solid. I feel like he could do a little bit more offensively. Um, and then you had, you brought in Mike Saunders and Mike Saunders, the talent is there. Like it's been mentioned Maybe the effort in practice isn't there quite yet, but I think the talent is pretty evident. And so if you're kind of able to fix the holes around that, I think long-term you can look at this last year's recruiting class as a pretty big win. Every year you continue to learn more and more about your program. You continue to learn about your players as well as what your team lacks. And I think because Craig Smith has more knowledge about that, then this next recruiting class could potentially be more impactful than last year's. Um, it's fun because we're finally starting to see like some reports of Utah offering guys. They're starting to get a little bit more in the recruiting game, which is kind of just what you would expect to happen around this time of year. And hopefully with just 
a strong Pac-12 tournament appearance, maybe winning one or two games, as well as a strong NIT appearance, then you can kind of capitalize on some of the recruiting momentum that you're building. And like I said, I, I feel like our last class was pretty decent. I would expect some guys to transfer out just because of how volatile the transfer portal has made college basketball. And people are always looking for different situations. Might think that might think the grass is greener somewhere. And I think that's just something to keep an eye on. Um, I also would expect Brandon Carlson to test the NBA waters this year. Um, He can go figure out what scouts are saying and possibly come back, or he can go and just try to make a G league team. I don't think he's going to get drafted, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, I mean, overall looking at the season, there's still one game left and uh, it sounds like there's a possibility that Madsen or Wooster could be available it's nice that it's on a Saturday, but at the end of the time, at the end of the day, they're both probably questionable to doubtful. And I wouldn't expect to see either of them, but if they can get healthy by the Pac-12 tournament, then all of a sudden you're back in business and you can try to make some noise. So it's going to be an exciting stretch going down. Um, I think just Utah's learned a lot about themselves this season. And I think that's a win in itself. I mean, within college basketball, you're always trying to win games. It's not like the NBA don't gain anything from losing games, but being able to just learn about yourself as a team. I think Utah's done that this year. And I think they've started to build the type of culture that they're wanting to build. I feel like Craig Smith has just totally had his handprint all over this program. And you're starting to kind of see some of the rewards of his coaching style of just the type of recruiter that he is. I think the future is very bright as long as Craig Smith is the man. And who knows, this time next year we could be talking about a potential NCAA tournament bid. I hope we're talking about an NCAA tournament bid this next year. Um, I think even if with a healthy roster, if both Wooster and Matson are able to come back by NIT time, I think they can make it. I think they have a really good case to make a run in the NIT. Uh, before both of those guys went down, they were projected to be a one seed in the NIT. So I'm excited to see what they can do. And like you said, I feel like the Pact of Tournament especially this year is more wide open than it has been in the past. I feel like for most of the time it's been Oregon, Arizona, UCLA and Utah for those few years was able to try and, I mean, they made it to the championship one year. So I'm hoping this time around, it's a little bit more open. Maybe it'll be like 2020 where Oregon state, you know, kind of runs the table as like the worst team in the conference and then is able to go to the elite eight, you know, who we never know, but I'm, I'm hoping that Utah can make some sort of noise right to just help them with recruiting. Because looking back, I think Craig Smith has been able to do a lot with what he's been given. And so I think now that the more and more momentum that the program gets, I think the better the recruiting will be and the better the class will be, like you were mentioning before. Uh, but to end with, to end today's episode, as always, we're going to do a draft segment. Richie, you mentioned Mandalorian season three is coming out. I know everyone's excited. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are. Are you excited for season three? I feel like we were kind of left baby Yoda. We had this great ending season two. He, you know, he left Grogu and then in, I think it was the book of Boba Fett where we see him come back together. I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts going into season three? I felt like we should have had a season where it was just Mando on his own, you know, yeah. like just kind of learn more about the guy. It, it's fun having baby Grogu in there. Cause he sells toys and you know, it, it's fun having somebody that can use the force or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would be nice to 
see Mando on his own. At the same time, as like a fan of Jedi, it sounds like we'll get some flashbacks just from what I've seen in the trailers. So I'm excited about that part of it. Um, but I mean, they've they've nailed this show so far. It's been, in my opinion, some of Lucasfilm's best work in this century. And I'm really excited for what they're going to do in this next week, man. I'm I'm going to be staying up till 1 a.m. to watch those episodes. Dude, best work of the century. Strong words from Richie Osler. Um, hey, I said so, some of. Uh, Revenge of the <laughs> Sith is, is best of, without a doubt. Oh, 100%. We stand Hayden Christensen. That guy's, a, <laughs> that guy's our man. All right. Um, did you have one last week? Um, or was it me? I think you did. You took, okay. I think you chose Gandalf. I did choose Gandalf. I just didn't. I can't remember who you. Who did you pick number one last week? Aragon. Aragon. That's right. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's classic. Okay. So I, I'm debating because obviously you can choose Mando being the star, Grogu fan favorite. But listen, I'm going to go um, maybe. No, this isn't a hot take at all. I'm going to go with Luke Skywalker just because the end of season two that was some of the best like prime Luke Skywalker we ever saw. In my opinion, we never got to see Luke at his peak uh, because four and five, he's kind of training six. We see him like now he's, he's like a Jedi, but we never get to see him like do his thing as like an actual master. And uh, because once we get to the sequels, he's just a loser. Um, he's, he's so I'm washed. excited. Yeah. He's, it's, he's it's like 42 year old LeBron, you know? Yeah. He, he's Not just the same Wiz- <laughs> wizards. MJ. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Luke, end of season two, that gave me chills. So I'm gonna go with him as my number one. That's a solid pick. He was he was high up on the board for me. Um, number one, I'm gonna go the Mandalorian. I mean, he's kind of designed to kill Jedi, so I feel like that would go well against Luke. Granted, Luke is Luke. You know what can he do? But Mando with the dark saber, I don't know. Maybe maybe he's a different beast, dude. I I kind of forgot about the dark saber for a second. I'm excited to see what he does with that. Yeah, I uh, I think that's some of the best. I think that's one of the best plots in Mandalorian is him wielding the dark saber. That's gonna be a big plot point in season three. I'm excited about that. Okay, second pick. Literally, probably just because I'm watching Breaking Bad right now. Got to go Moff Gideon. Uh, the fear factor that he had uh, the first season was phenomenal, uh, and even the second season, right? Like he just has he know that guy knows how to play a bad guy. Um, I just feel like I, I, I can truly believe he's a villain. And so I'm, I'm going to go with Moff Gideon at the two. Yeah, that's a that's a really respectable pick. Um, at my second spot, I think I'm going to go Boba Fett. Dude, Boba Fett's entrance when he first puts on the armor in season two, comes back in. You haven't seen him in so long. He's got the little knee rockets. I was, I was personally fanboying pretty hard. And yeah, yeah, I'm... I feel good about that pick. Boba Fett number two. Yeah. Subpar TV show. Fantastic entrance in Mandalorian. That was like, <laughs> that was the Boba Fett we wanted. And that's what we got. No um, kidding. At three, I'm going to go with Cara Dune. Um, she just seemed like a baller in every episode. Feel like Felt like for the most part, she kind of knew more how to handle with war and battle than maybe sometimes Mando did. But dude, she's she's a bad day with the, the blasters that she holds, man. She knows how to handle a weapon. I'm going to go Cara Dune at the three. Another great pick. Um, to match that, I think at my three, I'm going to take Ahsoka Tano. We saw her in season two as well. Dude, season two was great. You had like a little cameo every other episode. It was it was awesome. For for the hardcore Star Wars fans, it was awesome. 
Um, but yeah, like her with the white lightsabers, I am such a big fan. So I'm taking her number three. Dude, the fact that yeah, I think you're I think you're running away with this. You I think I think this you know this might be one you're winning. This this draft is <laughs> um okay at the we'll four we'll yeah at the four I'm gonna go with Bo Katan. Um I feel like hers is a character that's really cool to watch in the Clone Wars. We're able to see it again in, in Mandalorian. And I, I'm pretty sure she'll have a pretty big role in season three because I think she is fighting for the throne of Mandalore, which obviously Mando has to go back to, to repent for, you know, taking his helmet off. And he wields the dark saber, which technically means he should rule Mandalore. So I'm going to go with her at the four. Yeah. I'm, I'm way interested to see what they do with that storyline. Cause like they were kind of buddy, buddy for season two. I mean, there was like a little bit of tension because Mando never takes his helmet off and she does and there's some confusion there. Uh, but I'm excited to see what they do with that storyline. I think my number four pick, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the armor. I I love that scene in season one where all the stormtroopers come in and she just, you see all the the glass flying, you see her going ham on them. I it's iconic in my mind. I'm taking her. I was I was thinking of going in a similar direction and going with uh, Paz Visla. I think he was. The, he's, I think he's the big guy that yeah you know yeah. fights Mando in season two. I'm gonna go with Fennec Shand. Uh, I need a shooter, and <laughs> I think she's she's got the shot from deep. She's a sniper, obviously. Um, I don't know if I'm like a big fan of the character, but I'm a big fan of the talent, and that's really why I'm drafting is because I, I want talent. So I'm gonna go with Fennec Shand at the five. You think people are gonna be mad at us for not taking Baby Yoda in this draft at all? Because I don't think I'm gonna take him with my last pick. No, he's a, well, that's the whole point, is he's like a liability the whole show. I mean, he, yeah. he sometimes saves Mando, but like Mando is losing a lot to save him to help him because he's a baby. I mean it, it's it's kind of like Taylor Horton Tucker, like he's got he'll have one monster dunk a game, but then he'll throw up five bad shots. You know, it's, yeah, it's that's a, same energy. I feel like he's also maybe the opposite of today's NBA superstar, where he was offered a position with LA or like New York for a really good deal, but he decided he wanted to go back to a really small market. He wanted to go back to, I'm not bashing on it, but like he wanted to go back to Sacramento, you know, he wanted yeah. to go back to Milwaukee just cause it, it was home to him. Um, right. So I feel like, I think that's a good comparison for Grogu as well. You know, he's that type of superstar. Yeah, no, that's spot on. Um, my fifth pick, I'm going to take IG 11. I just, I love the scene in the first season where he just goes out, goes out swinging like as much as he could. And, it's, it's kind of iconic. That's like It was like such a good way to end the first season because you kind of, you're like, you start to like this robot. It's That's like designed to kill people. I don't know. It, it was awesome. Um, and I, I feel great about that pick. So, Yeah, that's a solid five pick. That might be a still of the draft. Uh, he was on my board. I don't know why I didn't go with him. <laughs> I, said, I said to go with Fennec Shan. Like, a robot is perfect because they do everything you want, but whatever. <laughs> All right, well, thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode. Hopefully you guys had a good time listening to us chat about the Jazz, the Utes. Hopefully we can get some more discussion in as they're going to have potentially a very good week next week. So stay tuned. Make sure to share with your friends, and we'll see you guys soon.